Can, can we have a listener competition for the for the most crazy playful idea? Yes. And they'll win Kendra's billions of dollars from her yes. dystopian universe. I will make a certificate that looks like a billion dollar bill and mail it to the winner. I love it. I absolutely love it. are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... My name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College in Kansas. My favorite childhood PE game was, I guess, in general, rolling around on the little tiny scooters on the gym floor. It didn't matter what the game was. (laughs) It was just getting to use the scooters that was the best part. I'm Kendra Holtmore, PhD student at Boston University, and my favorite PE game was the parachute game, where everyone stands in a circle and lifts the parachute into the air, and then you hurry and sit underneath the parachute and pull it down behind you, so everyone's sitting in a nice balloon bubble of parachute. And I sometimes pretend that I'm playing that game when me and my husband make our bed in the morning with our (laughs) comforter. (laughs) I don't think he likes that game as much as I do. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And my favorite PE game when I was a kid was tetherball. I'm Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And as a child, my favorite PE activity was when we would have kind of a free play time and the gym teacher wasn't paying attention and I could go hide on the stage and not do anything and be alone. (laughs) That feels like something that would have been my favorite game, not from you, Jack. This is is before I knew what um, the, what, major depression was and the way that I manifested oh. it as a child. I'm sorry, you said game and I, and I went in a very different direction. Um, kickball. Yay. <laughs> well, you know, we can, we can, we can go with game sort of widely interpreted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, I asked about this because we've been, we've been talking about climate change. We've been thinking about how it is that, uh, we, we, we talk about the actions that we take as individuals and whether that feels hopeful or meaningless. Does it feel like something that, uh, that, that we, we want to talk about how it is that we can contribute to solving the big sorts of global problems that we're encountering today. And uh, as it turns out, this is something that I've been working on a lot recently, and I I have an axe to grind against most of the uh, environmental folk out there, particularly the, the scientist environmental folk is who I like to grind my axe against, mostly because I, I tend to find that there's this pervading idea that if we just hit people with enough facts, they'll suddenly start acting better. So if you just know how bad the things you're doing are for the earth, you'll change your habits. And while that may work for a couple of people, like Zach, who you know eats bugs now, 
for most folks. <laughs> and other things. <laughs> and other things. Bug bars. <laughs> I don't, this bugs. doesn't need to become a John the Baptist Talk- kind of situation. Taco bugs. <laughs> I, I think for for most people that 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 isn't actually enough. That there's there's we have to think more widely about how it is that we want to change people's actions. If what we're really interested in is is affecting lasting change, and so like all good academics, that means I wrote a book because that's I don't know like what we do, and <laughs> um, I have been thinking about this in terms of the importance, particularly I I have been thinking particularly in terms of the importance of play. Um, and why we need or need to maybe emphasize playful solutions to to environmental problems. So a part of the book that is is important uh, to Tell me, us the title of this book, oh Adam. Oh, God. Uh, um, so it's called <laughs> Living with Tiny Aliens. Ooh. Um, I, don't, I don't remember what this is. No, it's, it's Living with Tiny Aliens, the Image of God for the Anthropocene. So the book there will of course be a link in the show notes. Yeah, I'm sure there will. <laughs> Please don't inflict. I'm this glad upon you yourself. pronounce it Anthropocene, by the way, oh. instead of Anthropocene. You're you're welcome. That's we're, it's a new word, and so we gotta we gotta push that pronunciation because it's um, so much better. Um, I I have trouble saying Anthropos Anthropocene. See, I can't even do it now. Um, yeah. our children will thank us. <laughs> so. Uh, the book as a whole like works from astrobiology and some issues in, in Christian theology about the image of God and then some work that's been done in environmental studies around the Anthropocene. But the end of the book is really trying to think about this issue that I feel a lot, which is that, that all of the little tiny things that I can do to maybe help mitigate things like climate change or environmental disaster don't mean a hill of beans a difference. So why would anybody continue to do that? Um, and so I thought a lot about play as the reason that my children seem to do all the stuff that they do, which feels like a sort of leap, but, but go with me here for a second. So I, I tell a story that my students seem to like and or they find really flummoxing um, about being in the yard with my son playing catch. And um, my son was about three, maybe four at this time. Um, and there was a large maple tree in the yard where we lived. And so we were, we were playing catch and throwing it back and forth, which if you've played catch with a four-year-old, you know, means <laughs> you throw the ball and they sort of like wander after it eventually because no one actually catches it. Um, and then they also throw it and that's a generous description of what happens. But, um, but but you know they try, and and so we were we were working on this, and I had thrown the ball a number of times, and it was rolling, and it rolled behind him, and it rolled up against this maple tree. And if you know anything about maple trees, you know they have really shallow root systems, so they tend to sort of stick out of the ground, and it's kind of knobby, and they're beautiful trees, but tripping hazards. And that is exactly what happened. My son went and ran for the ball. He caught a root, and it was like something out of Tom and Jerry, like. <laughs> Full pancake to the ground, splayed out, bug on a windshield <laughs> style. And I tried not to laugh, mostly, and waited to see if there was going to be that, like, you know, deep intake of breath and scream. 
and there wasn't. So then I was like, okay, now I can laugh a little bit more and that's okay. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and then he, and then he, he hopped up and went over to get the ball. I, I thought we were just going to continue to play, but all of a sudden he like hauled off and kicked the tree. <laughs> and I was taken aback by this one. I was afraid he was going to like break his toe or something, but also as I'm watching this, I, I kind of went, this feels like a good teaching opportunity because that is what I live for. And I said, Henry, why did you kick the tree? And Henry looked at me a little bit like I had rocks in my head and said, it tripped me. And I said, well, the, the tree was was here. You just tripped over it. And, and we don't kick living things. This is this is not how we treat other things other things in the world. Like it's important to respect the tree. And again, continuing to look at me like I had rocks in my head, which is a look I have now gotten used to. He he just flat out said, well, it's just a dumb tree, dad. Mm. And there was this sort of moment for me, at least of recognizing that on the one hand, I uh, don't agree with my four-year-old in this case. Um, <laughs> but also this this sort of awareness of saying like but that is a very natural reaction i think right it's hard to appreciate a tree or think about it as deserving a certain sense of respect in our sort of everyday encounters with things and even by the time my son was 4 and doing all sorts of weird and crazy imaginative things the idea that he should respect a tree the same way he would his friend was already sort of foreign so as we were continuing to talk about this, right, like I, I asked him, I was like, hey, well, you wouldn't like haul off and kick your friend who tripped you. And his immediate response was, no, but my friend can talk to me. And and I, I kind of went, well, yeah, fair. That is a good categorical distinction. And yet I, I want us to think about why it is that we we choose to respect certain things or not others. And that led me to thinking more about play. And the reason I thought about play was because when we play all of the real world rules kind of get to disappear at least for a moment or a little while as long as we're playing um, and we get to make things up and maybe i'm just a depressed college professor but i feel like that ability is disappearing and i to me if i think about the environmental crisis if i think about the the sort of issues that we've been talking about about climate change i think what scares me the most is the lack of imagination and the lack of a willingness to play and try new solutions, right? Mm. So like as much as I like give <clears throat> Zach a hard time about eating bugs, on the one hand, <laughs> right? On the other hand, I, I'm deeply respectful of like that as the way of sort of opening up a discussion about climate change because I think that's a really, in a certain sense, playful idea, right? And then pulling that over into everyday life after sort of teasing that out there's there is part of me despite all of my you know depressing things about starfish and things that we've talked about in past episodes still <laughs> hold on to some hope that that those instances of play are are really really important and and can be really important in terms of thinking about how we solve the climate crisis so that was longer than i thought but here's where i'm going with this i am curious what you all think if you could imagine with no limits, no limits at all, how you would solve the climate crisis, what would you do? You said no limits. No limits, so. no rules, anything that you want, 
as as wild or crazy a solution as you can possibly come up with. So I'm allowed to summon Captain Planet. You are allowed to summon Captain Planet in this case. Okay. Okay. So while the other two are thinking, and I'm just going to divert the my my answer to <laughs> the <laughs> the dead air, um, which Zach will shrink down for our listeners. At God home. bless him. Um, but there, there was a there was a bit there, and I'm buying you time, is because I think you're completely right about the lack of play in our intellect. That, and I don't know if that's, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know if that's adults. Like that's just one of the things that happens when you pass adolescence, or if that's something um, society has also sort of sapped out of us we certainly see a little bit of that removal of imagination and imaginative play as schooling happens so i think i think we're just uh, modeling your your concern and with that maybe uh zach or kendra has an actual answer for you yeah well i i would (laughs) i would love to see um a more of a return to the color green and, and by that, I mean things that are alive and that are absorbing sunlight and that require maintenance and interaction. Uh, one of the, the most wonderful uh, environmental liturgies that I participate in on a daily basis is maintaining my, my worm bin in my kitchen. And every day after dinner, my sons, my, especially my two-year-old, will say, Daddy, help worm, help worm. Because he loves to do this. He loves to take all of the, the fruits and vegetables they didn't eat and all the, the cuttings that we didn't use because they're yucky and they got stems in them and to feed them to the worms who scurry out of the way when they take the top off because they don't like light. And then they eat it. And the next time we open it up, those things aren't there anymore or they're much smaller. And then when that bin fills up and we put a new one on top and we usher them upward into the new bin, we take that old bin full of worm castings and we put it on our garden. And then we water our garden and spread it around and those worm castings become the food that we grow for the next year. And that cycle, which feels revolutionary, but is just so absolutely fundamental to the to the human experience for the past several million years that connects me to something deeper that makes it makes the prospect of eating crickets less uh, less absurd or of 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 not maintaining my perfect lawn right? how much hmm. wasted space i have out there and my front yard has two giant trees on it and it faces west so it is the worst location for grass it only gets sunlight for about an hour in the evening which is if you're going to get a little bit of sunshine you want it in the morning to walk to get rid of the dew and all the tree roots they take up all the nutrients and everything so it's just it's a horrible place for grass but the previous owners really wanted to have a perfectly manicured lawn so they have just just destroyed the soil trying to 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 grow something that doesn't want to grow there because there's no connection to what the earth wants and what the earth is doing and so i've just kind of let it 
let it go feral a little bit. <laughs> I've I've planted clover. I've encouraged the creeping Charlie and the dandelions and because you know the dandelions they have those deep tap roots that pull up calcium mm-hmm. from the from the deep parts of the soil the the clover help fix the nitrogen levels and they can they can survive around the giant roots of my ash tree and they love it and my yard is is greener than ever and full of weeds and i'm sure my neighbor hates me because those weeds, quote unquote, uh-huh. are starting to encroach on her territory, which is a perfectly manicured lawn. But like <laughs> that that connection to what lives and what grows is it's a spiritual connection for me. And so if I could change one thing about the way that we live, it would be that. It would be instead of having perfectly manicured lawns of turf grass that you never use, let's grow crops on our yard that we ourselves can eat. Let's let's make the roofs of our buildings into um, wild flowers that can that can sustain the bees and the insect population. Um, let's turn our skyscrapers into vertical farms and then all of the space that we are saving out, out in the factory farms we can let lay fallow and just let nature have some of the world back. And I think just letting letting nature take over and reconnecting us to that which is green and brown and living and dying would be, I don't want to say enough, but it sure would be something. beautiful and very different than the plan that I am formulating. (laughs) Because I'm over here thinking like, okay, my plan's going to require me to be very powerful and very rich so that I can punish people for using the things that destroy the earth. Tax all the plastic. No, ban all the plastic. And you get like tax write-offs if you go the extra mile to like, I don't know, grow things. (laughs) And (laughs) I think that also in this imaginary universe where I am ruler of the universe, I would write laws and force cities to have more green spaces and take advantage of, you know, space in a more environmentally friendly way. And if you don't do that, then you're punished. My plans rely on a lot of punishment. <laughs> right, Kendra the dictator. <laughs> so yeah, I, it's really, I don't have like a super well thought out plan. I just know I'm going to punish a lot of people. <laughs> because that works. <laughs> so well. It's not the and worst And people will hate me. But... The earth will be saved. (laughs) And you'll be rich and powerful. You won't care. Yeah, I won't care. That's right. Well, I think think in my my imagination, um, it's not nearly as poetic and lovely as Zach's and nor is it as um, kind of 
evil and manipulative as, as far as um, but much more realistic. Actually, say. completely unrealistic. <laughs> Mine is now the unrealistic, right? We joked about having uh, Captain Marvel show up or someone. I think, for me, if we were to completely, you know, no holds, no limitation. I can't think of magic. That, that doesn't work for me. But I'd like to get rid of anything, any structure that is not a single family dwelling. And huh. for me, I say it like that because if you don't if you don't have a skyscraper, you don't need to you don't need to dig for the you know, make the steel. You don't need to make have the plastic that goes into your drywall. You don't need to destroy the forests that go into framing the building. You don't you don't need all the resources that go into it. And if you don't have a skyscraper, then you don't need to have these major corporations that need to exist in the same location, which means that we're far more in tune with our our proximity culture as opposed to a global culture. And we get back to what we see and what we experience and our, our senses rather than solely our intellect. And by removing all of those things, I think we can do far better with each other. And then we realize that it's really hard to just live by oneself. And maybe we'll go back to generational living, which I think is a tremendous loss that our American society has gotten rid of for the most part. Now, I say that, and I say, but I can't. I guess it depends on your generation. Theory. (laughs) (laughs) No, it doesn't depend on your generation. It depends on the generations above and below you. (laughs) Right? Maybe you choose someone else's grandparents. I don't know. (laughs) I didn't say it had to be your grandparents. Just someone's grandparents. Um, (laughs) You don't like your kids today. Use someone else's kids. I don't know. Who am I to judge? Generational living made Um, a lot more sense when everyone was a farmer. And you had a family farm that could sustain your generations, that you inherited that land, you worked that land, you lived there. And now, you know, we have to chase our jobs now. That, um, but, but, but that's in American society. If you look at still non-agricultural places, I'm thinking um, Japan, where there's still a lot of generational living. Right? Intergenerational living, I suppose, is a, uh, the accurate term. Right? And that, and that's not because they're still agricultural, right? So I, I don't think it's just that. I think it is our, our, we're independent and you can do it on your yeah. own and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you should need help from anybody. And, and it's sort of like, I would love to just like leave my house with my husband and not my child at some time, but I have to keep my child safe. And we don't have any family within hundreds, hundreds of thousands, you know, thousands of miles from us. And and I think I think we miss something because of that. We miss we miss different independences. So my my radical climate crisis fix would be to tear down all of the large structures that exist in the world and everything that falls from that. So, so Adam, I, you asked the question. Oh, are oh, there I'm going aliens to my involved own in your answer? 
Yeah, I'm not letting can't. you off the hook this time. Yeah. No. We're not um, your students, okay. so we can Gosh. just nag at you <laughs> and tell you actually Usually that's questions. the point where I You're can not just my move real on dad. and nobody asks. Um. <laughs> I can add something to my um, dictatorship if you'd like. While yeah, no, that would be great. Ooh, are you going to kill half awesome. the population? <laughs> <laughs> actually, Thanos. this isn't really a dictator move. Um, this is more like a rich, wealthy elite move because, you know, I I'm would have the all the money. Thing. Uh, that's, I guess, <laughs> another conversation. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but in my uh, world where I have all the money, I would just, like, take a huge <laughs> lump sum of my billions and billions of dollars and say, this is a prize for whoever can actually come up with more sustainable ways mm. of using uh, energy. I mean, we already have, like, a lot of sustainable ways, but to make those more accessible and um, easier to implement across like the broader society. And so if you can come up with a way to do that, that's cheap and will help us stop relying so much on the things that are destroying us, then you can have billions of dollars out of my wealthy mansion and deep pockets. (laughs) So just make it a competition. I, I'm just I saying, to, people respond I, to money. <laughs> they do. They do. Less I, so to worms and dandelions over here. <laughs> <laughs> I um. I, so I, I. I guess if I were, if I, if I lived in my, you know, world with no rules where I could make things up, I, I have two that I think I would, I would implement. I, I could probably think of more, but I, I can think of two right off the bat. So the first one is everybody gets health care. Mm. mostly because my my sort of bit there would be to say like i think we spend so much time so much time worrying and and desperately afraid of what is going to happen to us if we if we don't have access to what is literally a life-saving system and getting access to it is so difficult that it it prevents us from asking the sorts of questions about climate change and and environment that maybe we could ask if if we were a little less worried so that's one um, and then the the other is I would uh, cap the size of all cities at six thousand people. Six thousand. Yes. Goodness gracious, that is not a city. It is not a city. That fits perfectly I mean, with my plan. I know, and right? Zach's so even. I, I it's true. I, I and mean, other mine. Than, I mean, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> this dictator. K- Kendra, master of the universe, will require us all to live in communes of 6,000. Um, no, I, but I, so I, I think one of the other things that I, I think a lot about, and, and if I had, you know, sort of my druthers, is, is this idea that, like, I, I, I feel like when people get anonymous, it's mm-hmm. hard to, to feel like you care for them. Um, yep. whereas when I have to look at the smelly, stinky face of my neighbor, it maybe helps. I'm not convinced that's true all the time, but at the very least, I feel like when I'm dealing with 6,000 people instead of a couple of hundred thousand or a million, which is like a number that I can barely even like really fathom, frankly, um, there's, I, I feel like I would be more willing to work on their behalf. Mm. But why, why? Is, where where did you get this idea of six thousand? I don't know. I just like that like, number. Why? Okay. I, I have <laughs> no no particular reason. I, really, what I what I should have done is like look up like there because there, the there have been town. some like 
Yeah, well, no, my town's three thousand, so we're we're square under. Um, <laughs> but but there are there have been anthropological studies about ideal size mm-hmm. groups in terms of how many folks people can quote unquote truly be friends with. Right, right? that's and what we talked that, about a while ago, like Dunbar's number. Yeah, right. right. So this this is sort of part of my my sort of sense, and and I I think that's a sort of flexible number, but I look at this a little bit, and it, it is really like living in a small town has made me appreciate very differently than I did like growing up in in larger, more urban areas of what lengths I would go to to try and help out someone, even somebody who I don't really know because they live here, mm-hmm. which I did not have as a sensibility in other places that I've been. Or if I did, it was like because of a, it was like a more restrictive community within that area. And I think I think... I also live in a small town. My town is not nearly as small. It has quite a few stoplights. Um, <laughs> More than hey, one internet line. I, <laughs> I, I love um, our I lack two. of stoplights. I think two. And we're at like 25 megabyte download, if you're lucky. Um, one day. One day. So, <laughs> but, you know, Hendersonville itself has a population of about 14,000. Which, you know, sizably bigger than Adams, but still a small town compared to most other places. And in that way, I I go all over. I go all over our town and um, I sometimes I go for myself and sometimes I go to uh, sit with congregants for moral support or other reasons. So one day I was meeting someone at a courthouse and anytime you go into a courthouse, you have to put all of your, you know, put all of your belongings so that they can scan it. And then you go through uh, a metal detector. And so I put all my stuff through, went through the metal detector and it beeped, which meant I had to be wanded. And who comes over but a congregant? <laughs> and a congregant <laughs> is a volunteer sheriff who happened to be on shift that day. And my congregant is the one who has to wand me. And <laughs> there's a whole different level of understanding who you're dealing with <laughs> when you meet people at the doctor's office or the courthouse or the grocery store. And they're like, oh, what are you buying today? Oh, it looks like you're hmm. shopping for a lot of people. Uh, are you having a party? <laughs> um, I think that kind of lack of anonymity can be helpful. Uh, in in some ways, it can be stifling in other ways. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> but but I see what you're saying, Adam. And I and there's there is I never I used to live in the Denver area, which has a metro uh, a metro of like three metro population of about three million. So I don't know exactly what it was when I left. Um, so a large number, and I. Or when when we would get together and we would be in New York together. I never felt so alone as I did while wandering the streets of New York. And I never feel that here in Hendersonville. And for the most part, that's a that's a nice feeling. One of the ways that people are trying to correct both both this feeling of anonymity and the disconnection from 
the rest of life that so awfully defines the Anthropocene is through uh, expanded community gardens. Um, and in lots of yeah. cases, yeah. guerrilla gardens. This is something I was involved yeah. with in Philly because there Can you are so- describe what that is? Oh yeah, there are so many abandoned lots that are owned by the city or because you know somebody had lived there and they couldn't pay the taxes and so there's lean against it and the city just owns it and they don't want to they don't want to let people on there because they want to get money off of it and in the future maybe some hotshot new york developer will come and make this some hipster spot and they want to be able to make money off of it and so they will not release it to communities they won't make these things into parks or anything like that and so you know my church and folks connected to us we would just take over um without asking anyone's permission and would clean up the lots test soil would cleanse soil would build raised beds would build gates and would then give out spots to uh local people in the communities so you're you're bringing some life into some of the most blighted areas in the city you're creating a space where people come together and they get to know each other and you're creating a a consumable good that then you don't need to purchase from another place which is reducing you know, carbon footprints and whatnot and you know a lot of times what would happen would be once that area was cleaned and preserved and beautiful that's when the city would come in and say like <laughs> you need to get off of this property that we didn't care about until this moment that you did all the work for us and you know sometimes they'd fight it sometimes they'd just go off and find another lot or we used to build these uh seed bombs <laughs> yeah where you would take this ball of of dirt and clay and fertilizer and um, make these balls out of it with white clover seed in it and sometimes uh, sunflower seed and throw them over fences into areas that were abandoned and <laughs> in, in some cases like uh, with ground full of lead and other heavy metals because white clover will cleanse soil as will um, sunflowers mm -hmm. and so you add a little That's bit of so life cool. you give a little bit of food and uh, environment for the local insect population. So you help to support the food tree of whatever animals can thrive in the city and you beautify a little bit and you, it, it also kind of raises awareness to those spots that you would normally just, you are trained not to look at. Um, so I, my sister's doing a lot of this in, in Camden, New Jersey um, and teaching kids about, um, sustainable farming and living and going one step further than just the garden, but transforming it into urban farms and doing a lot more sustainable work. I have, they're, they're making hot sauce and raising bees and all of that, which by the way, um, Kendra, with all of your money and everything, one of the, 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 the tricks that the super rich people do is they, they have a beehive on their property because then they can technically list their property as farmland. And Perfect. so all of Done. those rich people, billionaires have a beehive. So make sure you do that. I will. You don't Thank want to pay taxes. Thank you for the advice. Oh, though yeah. I do have to say that in order for it to be considered a farm, it does have to make at least $1,000 a year. Good to know. So, all yeah. right. So Done. it's not. So you and can. You, you might be able to claim like, it. 
buy it. (laughs) Use one of your shell companies to purchase (laughs) $1,000 worth of honey. I mean, since you you have, although I I do have to say the way that you describe this, Zach, you know, a a seed bomb does feel like it fits um, Kendra's dystopia environment. (laughs) (laughs) Vigilante environments throwing seed bombs everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, with with bandanas covering your face so nobody knows who you are. I mean, this is the world we live in. Environmentalists. That's what you described, and I can't. I'm okay with that. (laughs) <laughs> but it, so, like, I I think what's what's interesting to me, and, and and why I like asking about like what happens when you start taking away rules, right? Is 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 some of the things that like that that you all are describing, right? Like, one, you can laugh about it, which is not generally what we do when we talk about climate crisis. Fair, we should not generally laugh about it, but but that's important. <laughs> um, yeah. It's it's important not to just sort of be overwhelmed by it, but but two, right? Like, I I think we actually sort of start imagining really interesting things we can really do when we start letting go of what the rules are. We know we're supposed to do things this way, but if we mm. let the rules go for a while, suddenly there are these other possibilities that start to emerge that we, we sort of play with, that percolate, that come up, and and they don't seem so unfathomable anymore, right? Like seed bombs on the face of it sounds <laughs> fairly weird and unfathomable. And yet... I'm pretty sure Kendra will be walking around Boston throwing seed bombs pretty soon. <laughs> it's what birds do every time they poop. <laughs> Wait, what did you say? This is how this is what birds do every time they oh. poop. The the seeds from the things they ate are mixed in with their fertilizer and but they drop them in random places. They're not doing it intentionally. I think uh, look, that's the point you're missing. <laughs> I'm, I'm using nature as an inspiration for acts of rebellion against the death of society. We are. Oh, you're back to your teenage angst. Sound. I never left it. I just Googled where to buy seed bombs. <laughs> you can get them all over the place. You can make tell them me too. Amazon is selling them because that would be the irony of ironies. Oh man! <laughs> yep, you, sh- you should get yourself a VPN. <laughs> Our finest seed bomb matrix found at Amazon.com. Yes. <laughs> Who has pledged to be a totally carbon neutral company right in the next 15, 20 years? So yeah. This is just their way of starting. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> but I, I, I think the other thing that it does, like besides like one helping us laugh and not feel depressed, but two, <laughs> is is this idea that like I when I hear all the stories that you're telling, right? There's a certain sense in which there's an empathy that gets developed, mm. right? As part of as part of letting yeah. go of these rules, and and I think that was for me that's what's like struck me like when I watch my kids play, yep. right? Is like, I mean. True. Kids do like really stupid and cruel stuff to each other. Let's just be clear. They're not like saints. Read Augustine. One can be clear that children are sinful. But <laughs> like, I'd rather not read Augustine yeah. if I can help well, it. But, oh, or, sorry, this is a tangent. But like it, it is like my favorite part of Augustine when he makes the justification that infants are sinful because they cry. And I'm like, I feel that way right now. I 100% feel that way every time my child cries in the middle of the night. I'm like, you selfish bastard. Go back to sleep. Adam has a newborn at home. (laughs) So I love you, Linus. Um, But uh, right. So 
Start saving for therapy now. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so, so what I think about though, like, is is in these moments where where kids are playing with each other, right? They they are sort of creating these 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 links, these these moments of empathy where they start to to really care and feel. I like to use the term "feel with," right? Mm. Feel with their neighbor, right? Feel with the person that they're playing with. That something about that play makes that person, even though it's totally unreal, the play makes that person more real to them. And that is a piece that I think gets lost in the in the climate conversation and when we talk about how we want to make solutions. So, so my favorite uh, I I've, I've been holding this one back, but like my favorite solution is this piece that the the person who used to be the campus pastor here at Bethany she's she's great. She runs the Lutheran Restoring Lutherans Restoring Creation group for our area of the church, the Senate in this this um, place. And um, if you go on their website, one of the things that that is like suggested as is something churches can do is put local wildlife into the directory. <laughs> and I, I just I ran across this by accident as I was looking for like playful solutions and this kind of thing. And but I was like, wait, no, wait, wait, what? That's what? <laughs> that's kind of brilliant. I mean. If all of a sudden, right, you're looking for, you know, Adam Pryor in the directory and instead you first come to Prairie Chicken, <laughs> I think there's something that's that's like good about that, right? Um, and it's it's meant to be this sort of like consciousness raising exercise, right? The same way that we're talking about which rules apply, right? It's, it is, this is playfully breaking a rule in order to help us feel with other folks. Hmm. Um, and as silly as it sounds, there's there's a part of me that says like those those are the sorts of things that do actually really matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is as hopeful as I am ever, ever going to get on this podcast, mm-hmm. by the way. So you better like hang on to it because it's never going to back. But right, there's a so, woodpecker that keeps eating the side of my church and gnawing holes in it. Well, tapping holes, drilling holes into it because once you get through the stucco, there's just this lovely insulation in there and right outside of my window of my office and we fill the hole and then it makes a new one in another place and we put up like we hung cds from our from (laughs) our gutters we put up fake owls we've done everything except for hire a local falconer to come and hunt the thing because it (laughs) under the migratory birds act you can't put anything up that would harm it Um, have you tried throwing a seed bomb at it <laughs> I'm thinking about just baptizing it and calling it a member, and then I'll only have to deal with it a few times a year. <laughs> just make sure he goes in the directory. Um, but I, I, I'm one of the things that I am like particularly interested in right now are like curating these crazy ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I spend a lot of my time with college students who don't want to talk about crazy ideas because they're like, I want to know what the solution is to this problem. Let's just move on. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. We're going to spend the next hour talking about all of the crazy ideas that you might have about what it is that we could do. So for instance, right, like I, I spent like an hour uh, about a month ago with students talking about would it work or not work to cover the Sahara Desert in solar panels? Oh, I've seen that idea. Yeah. That, yeah. This is like actually like an MIT study that that yeah. um, was was sort of put forward, right? But like on the face of it, that sounds bonkers. And yet I think it sounds right? amazing. But why? 
Europe has a long history of stealing from Africa. There's precedent for this. Right? Like, but, but, but I think like opening up, thinking about how it is that we get out of the rut of thinking about what's the next solution and, and can I take some time in order to, to, to just playfully imagine like something that sounds totally outlandish. I, I think there's still a lot of value in that. Um, have you have you heard of any of these solutions for storing energy that are super no, crazy and outlandish and wonderful? Because you know, out west where you've got tons of sunlight mm-hmm. all day long, forever, but y- you can have solar and but then um nighttime comes and you need electricity and you can just recharge batteries, I guess, but batteries don't scale very well. And so they're trying to figure out other things that they could do to store energy. And so they've taken some inspiration from old like clock mechanisms and in harnessing gravity. So there's there was one out somewhere out in the desert where during the day all surplus electricity would be put into a a train, and that train would be driven up a hill. And then at night they would slowly let the train down the hill and it, the wheels would generate electricity. Huh. And then people could take from that. Um, I love this already. Right? There was another one where they um, they used surplus electricity to pump water up an abandoned water tower and then let it cycle through in the evening. There was another one that was super crazy where they pumped air into an abandoned salt mine and pressurized a salt mine. <laughs> <laughs> then use that air coming out afterwards to to generate electricity because our so, our, so farting mines is really what they're doing yeah exactly salty <laughs> farting mines oh yes because <laughs> our our grid is is developed for power on demand not for power storage so yeah. we can't yeah. handle surges or depletions and so that's why coal works so well you just burn more burn less. Right. There's, there's all of these wacky ideas that people are doing to figure out better ways we can store excess energy because the answer to our problem is not just going to be more windmills and solar panels because mm-hmm. we don't have, we're kind of already at capacity for that. We're not designed, our electric system is not designed for that sort of energy production. And so we have to come up with other solutions of energy storage if we're going to move forward with green energy which is one of the super exciting things about the new nuclear generators that are that have just been developed the new generation of of nuclear generators actually can run off of the spent fuel from the last generation and so all of that spent nuclear fuel that we don't know what to do with that's in the rest of the salt mines out in Utah we can then take that and have free energy which burns clean and you just have to convince people that it's safe enough and not to think mm-hmm. about Fukushima and Three Mile Island and uh, well good thing we didn't shoot that into space 
because that was originally a plan. <laughs> also, all of these ideas would be really competitive candidates for my billion-dollar grant for environmentally-friendly energy. I'm all in. And I would spend all my money on clovers, and I would spread them on everyone's lawn who thinks that clovers are a weed because they are the best plant in the world. Wait, wait, you so will just have bunnies and bees all the time. Can, can we have a listener competition for the for the most crazy playful idea yes and they'll win kendra's billions of dollars from her dystopian universe i will make a certificate that looks like a billion dollar bill and (laughs) mail it to the winner (laughs) i love it i absolutely love it and uh, somehow makes me think there's going to be a unicorn on the front of that (laughs) I think there now has to be, but only a unicorn that has like, but yeah, only, only an angry unicorn who like has saddlebags full of seed bombs (laughs) (laughs) and angry eyebrows. (laughs) Of course. Like Charlie the unicorn. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, no, I I totally think we should. This is like our open call to listeners to send Send it over to us. The, the most playful idea you have for dealing with climate change. And mm. you might win billions of dollars. <laughs> Fake billions of dollars, but billions in, of dollars. In Kendra Bucks. In Kendra Bucks. <laughs> Kendra Bucks. That's it. <laughs> what I love about this exercise, Adam, is that one of the things that I do um, is teach teach engaged couples how to talk to each other. Um Right, because we most of us don't really know how to talk to each other. I'm just and saying there were a that... lot of places I thought this could go. Hashtag clergy I am, I am, re- I am ready. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, we. Most of us, when in relationship with another person, right, an intimate relationship with someone else, we will have a fight. And often we will have a disagreement and it'll be the same disagreement. Everyone here is married, right? Everyone on this podcast is married. And I, I can say for certain that we all have probably... Uh, fights with our our spouses and it's probably the same fight that you've been having since you've known each other um because it's like the one thing that just and it and it it'll it'll show itself up in various ways um and for those that can't see kendra's nodding like yep <laughs> this is <laughs> this is you're speaking my tune um but it's tough th- to decide who gets to go under the parachute right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, Zach. Do, do you and your wife have a completely perfect, never have? That's a trick question. Don't answer that, Zach. I'm sorry. We've yeah. we've never had a disagreement about anything, especially not not petty things like me forgetting how to function as a, an adult. An adult? These things don't, they don't happen. Yeah. No, yeah, never, perfect. never. And especially since, yeah, <laughs> especially <laughs> since, you know, you of course would never fight over parenting styles or even small petty parenting We have perfect kids. Like, Why would we do that? Of course. <laughs> no. um, so having said that, one of the things that I like to do is this exact same thing that you're talking, Adam, and saying, take something that's a challenge for you and brainstorm. 
and brainstorm every wacky idea that ever exists and bring humor into it and bring levity and bring realism and bring everything possible and make a tremendously long list. And I, I, I tell them they have to come back to me with 20 different things to try. And 20 is a lot of things to try, right? And maybe somewhere in that 20, there's one that works. So we might be laughing over this, but seed bombs and solar panels and uh, hydroelectricity and, and billion dollar grants and billion dollar unicorn bills and, you know, Captain Marvell coming to save our universe, <laughs> our planet, right? Whatever, whatever it is, I think that's the exercise. And you, 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 you got it right on the head that we... We get so stuck in our woe is us. This is always going to be a fight. This is always going to be something that causes us tension and we don't know how to fix it. So we'll just live with it. We don't want to live with the climate crisis. We want to make it not exist. We want to bring it down so that the next generations can brainstorm over their stupid fights. So I think... I, I'm I'm loving this exercise and I just gotta say I'm loving the the optimism that Adam is demonstrating because it's a rare treat for all of us. One time. One time only. What's it? <laughs> yeah, I feel like I maybe absorbed some of Adam's pessimism in this episode. I'm a little bit today. <laughs> I did not anticipate that today I would become a dictator, but <laughs> That's where we are. I, I gotta say, that was the second most unexpected thing that happened during this episode, was that when I asked people to be playful, Dictator was not one of the games that I thought anyone here would choose. Yeah. She's like, she's the pessimism clover, who is fixing the pessimism levels in the soil, <laughs> redistributing them. Everything That's needs great. to be balanced out. Yeah. You know, the world yeah. wants to be in equilibrium. Right, that's, that, as all things should be. <laughs> that's right. Now that's Let's bring yeah. Thanos back into this. Ah, <laughs> oh, ah, oh, dude. <laughs> what? Perfectly balanced as all things should be. Yeah, but I, he's uh... totally evil, so that's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, he made some good points. <laughs> <laughs> This has been episode 27 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. I want to give a huge shout out to all of our Patreon supporters, but especially this week, Mark Bloom and Ruth Shaver. You people are amazing, and you are some of the reasons why we do this. So check it out if you're interested at patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast if you want to get in on some of them sweet, sweet perks. Speaking of perks, we were not kidding about that billion dollar idea. You can hit us up this week on all the social medias, links in the show notes, or send us an email at admin at downthewormhole.com, also in the show notes. We will judge your submissions on a purely arbitrary standard according to which one we like best that day, however we're feeling. You know, the way that most grants seem to be awarded. But anyway, send us your best ideas to fix the climate crisis and you could be internet famous and fake rich. Tune in next week as our benevolent dictator Kendra asks how religiosity affects one's views on climate change. Spoiler alert, we may all be hypocrites, but maybe that's okay? Find out next week. Until then, don't forget to <laughs> that's right. send, send us it over to us. The, the most playful idea you have for dealing with climate change, and mm. you might win 
billions of dollars. <laughs> Fake billions of dollars, but billions of dollars. In Kendra Bucks. In Kendra Bucks. Kendra Bucks. That's it. <laughs>